You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. All life is born from chaos. The world doesn't always adhere to logic. Sometimes down is up. And sometimes when you're lost, you're found. The Klingon Empire has been in disarray for generations. We've encountered them. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Captain, incoming! essential process of all existence, Commander Burnham. Go! You must challenge your preconceptions, or they most certainly will challenge you. What the hell is going on on this ship? Run! We are creating a new way to fly. Hurry. I'm getting very close to. You're mad. I'm mud. You're just doing the right thing. Being a great cost to yourself. You helped start a war. Don't you want to help me end it? Everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rant. My name is Carlos Perón, and today we have some Trek in your future. Not only are we going to be talking about the posters of the month, which include Star Trek II and The Warriors, if you guys remember that classic late 70s film. Both these posters are iconic in my book. And since it's the 35th anniversary of Star Trek II, a perfect time to dabble into uh, Wrath of Khan a little bit more, as we've done in the past. But this time, especially, we're going to talk about the poster and how it's different than our usual entries into the posters of the month. With the Warriors, it's a little different. It's a little more of a classical poster, I would say. And what a cool movie that remains, even still now. It is such a weird genre called classic. Then we're going to jump to Blade Runner 2049. The movie is right around the corner. We're going to go see it in a couple of days as of recording this. But before that, we've been giving these little treats from the director in the form of these short films that kind of bridge the gap between the original film and this new, more modern film that's coming out. Three different little short films, two of them standard cinematic type that can kind of almost look like (laughs) deleted scenes, but are directed by completely different directors. And the third one being an anime style one, which is incredible in how perfectly anime fits in the world of Blade Runner. After that, we're going to conclude... With returning to Star Trek, we are going to give you a little review of the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery. The, in my opinion, somewhat controversial 
<laughs> entry into the Star Trek television world by it being in a streaming pay service format. But we were able to watch the freebie part one and the not-so-freebie part two, and I will put in my two cents of an opinion of what I thought of it. So let's begin with our posters of the month, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and The Warriors. You can collect them all! You are a toy! Batteries not included. This is get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. So today we're going to return to our poster of the month segment. The two posters that we have up this month are uh, very different posters, uh, different style, different genres. <laughs> but nonetheless, some of my favorite movies, you know, from way, way back. The first one is Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. This is the 35th anniversary. Hard to believe that movie came out so long ago. And the poster that I'm going to be talking about is the one that, I think it's the one that was in the movie theater when I went to see the film. And this is a poster that's different from the previous ones I've been talking about, because on previous posters, what we've been dealing with is mainly art. Things that were drawn by professional artists and that sort of thing. This one is more of a picture collage. There is a art version of this poster. Not that they replicated the poster by drawing it, but there is a secondary poster that was drawn I don't own that one, and, you know, you can look it up. It's on, um, you can just Google it, and you'll see it. And it's also the one that they use for the director's cut, I believe, on the DVD when it was first released. And that one is, a again, a more classically drawn type of poster. You have cons in the middle, and, you know, you have the cast is all around, and, you know, different scenes. You could check, actually see it, and you have some ships, some firing lasers, and this and that, but... This poster is the one that you have. In the middle of it, you have a rectangular box, let's say, where it says, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. And it says, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and then you have the credits. That's the middle of the poster. But all framed around the poster are other boxes, you know, kind of encircling that first square, with actual shots from the film. And let me talk a little bit about these different shots. And I'm going to describe them in terms of like a clock. So at the 11 o'clock part, if you look on the top, you have a shot of the Enterprise firing on the Reliant. Then on the one o'clock position, it looks like it might be the inside of the Enterprise, you know, uh, sparks flying and that sort of thing. At the two o'clock position, you have a pretty... Nice tight shot of what could be Khan or one of his men in that desert-ish kind of outfit, you know, that protective outfit from Seti Alpha 5, which is a pretty clear one. You know, you don't see like any dust or anything, so it must be, it could be a production still, that sort of thing. And that's one of the things about these pictures is that some of them could be actual shots, you know, screen grabs, but some of the other ones might be production stills, you know, that the unit photographer was taking during the film. At the 3 o'clock position, you have another shot of the Enterprise, kind of in space. Then at the 4 o'clock position, you have what looks like to be a a man, probably, inside of an environment that's exploding. So he's kind of, uh, like, off balance. And what's interesting about that specific picture, and it's something I always think about, and I remember that's the first thing I thought about when I saw it back when I was, let's see, 1982, 12, I was 12, is... That must be some weird creature that has three or four arms. Because if you look at that picture, the guy looks like he's hanging on to something on both sides. But he also has, there's, there appears to be another arm kind of coming out of the back of his head. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that must be like a weird creature from this movie that, that we're going to see. But no, it was just an optical illusion of somebody probably standing behind him with his arm up that makes him look like he's got three arms. 
it's silly, it's stupid. You'll see, you know, when you see the poster, you'll see what I'm talking about. Then at the uh, five o'clock position, you have what looks like to be uh, probably the Enterprise engineering, uh, you know, exploding, you know, uh, crew members uh, running around, that sort of thing. At the seven o'clock position, you have a nice white shot of all of Khan's men in that desert kind of environment. You know, and it's very dusty. You can barely see all these figures. And yeah, again, you're looking at those and going, wow, those must be some weird creatures in the film. Then at the eight o'clock position, you have an engineering a crew member, which is the guy that's supposed to be Scotty's nephew running towards the camera, kind of. Then at the nine o'clock position, you have Terrell screaming inside his suit. So that's, I guess, when the creature goes into his ear. And then at the 10 o'clock position, let's say you see David leaning over what at the time you don't get a really good look of who he's leaning over because of the angle it could be anybody but now we know it's kirk because he he's holding the knife at him you know when he when he encounters him for the first time now the design of the poster i imagine based on what i've been reading about other posters and how these things come about is that they don't want to tell you too much about what the movie is going to reveal so for example you don't have any pictures, or at least any clearly seen pictures, of the Star Trek crew. You do have that shot of Kirk, but it's you almost don't realize it's Kirk. You don't see Khan. Uh, Ricardo Montalvan is not you know, shown in this poster. So maybe that's part of the mystery of this initial first poster was that the non-too-much-reveal poster. And like I said before, the rest of the crew, there are no shots of the rest of the crew. The poster is all action, basically. It's action, action, action. That's the impression I get from seeing this poster. Now, what's interesting about this poster also is something I mentioned on a couple of episodes uh, way, way, way back, I think, is that when I went to see the film, this was the poster in the theater. And inside, they were giving out, you know, at the lobby, the theater attendants, they were handing out these free little posters for people to take home. And the one that I have is a version of this poster, but it's done horizontally as opposed to vertically, and it's a smaller version. And I remember that was something that, wow, that's that's so neat that they give you a little poster to take home with you. I don't want to say they don't do this anymore because they have been kind of doing something like this lately. I've been seeing it. You go to a movie nowadays, and sometimes, depending on the theater, in the lobby, there'll be like a stack of small size posters, which are basically replicas of the regular poster, but in a small, you know, size. But this is something different. This is something that you got to kind of take home. It folded in half, I remember. And this is also from a time where sometimes at movie theaters, they would sell you a little magazine of the movie you were watching. So, for example, I believe when you were watching like Empire Strikes Back, you could buy the magazine or Star Trek, you could buy the magazine. This is a time where sometimes you could buy you know, additional <laughs> merchandise, you know, at the movie theater. This is something that never, never happens. And it just does not happen anymore. It's just not feasible these days. But, you know, one of the reasons I, I love this poster, well, obviously it has to do with the movie, you know, Star Trek II is the preeminent <laughs> Star Trek film. It's the one that everybody compares everything else to. And it just happens that yesterday I went to see a anniversary screening of Star Trek II in Orlando. I was supposed to see it like a week ago or two in Ocala because they were having a nighttime anniversary screening. But because of the hurricane, they were, I believe they either canceled it or I wasn't going to go out there the day of the day before the hurricane hit. So I missed it. And then, you know, I was kind of bummed about it. And then all of a sudden I saw an ad that said, hey, because of the people who missed the, you know, the screening, we're going to do one in Orlando and at Disney Springs, you know, in one of the big AMC theaters down there. So I went down there. So you know what? Let's just do it. I'm not, you know, how many more times am I ever going to get to see this in the Brick screen and it was great it was wonderful the movie like they do i guess when these anniversary screenings to give you a little extra bonus they give you kind of when i went to you know when i went to see a close encounters a couple of other weeks ago they did like a little making of documentary before the movie and here what they do is they do an interview with shatner a new interview where he reminisces about you know the film and that and it was a nice little like a 10 minute interview and they asked him all kinds of questions and he talks about how some of the things having to do with the film in which the, you know, the budget because of the first film wasn't as successful and because it was the first film, this time around they 
kind of gave they gave them like a quarter of the budget the budget of the film from the first to second went from like 44 million dollars to 11 million dollars so they kind of had to it's the usual do more with less scenario uh he also talked about how you know it was written into the film that spock would die here because you know he apparently didn't want to continue with the franchise however you know and he said very smartly he did add a little scene where he kind of touches mccoy and says remember and that was kind of like a little escape clause, if you will, in case he changed his mind, which eventually he did. And then at the end of the film, they added a scene, they shot a scene of the casket laying on the new Genesis planet. And that was apparently something that was shot afterwards without really, I don't want to say the approval, but... Nicholas Meyer wasn't too happy about it. That's something the studio wanted because they wanted to be able to, you know, kind of be able to bring Leonard Nimoy back as Spock, you know, if he changed his mind. Now, whether or not he already had changed his mind by the time the movie was edited, I'm not sure. It sounds like it, because why would you add those scenes? And obviously, they did give him, they did get him to return under the condition that he would be able to direct the next film. And what uh, Shatner was saying was that one of the things about that benefited him was that he had a favorites nation contract, meaning that anything that Nimoy would get, Shatner would get, and anything Shatner would get, Nimoy would get. So by Nimoy being able to direct a film, automatically Shatner would have that same opportunity. So in theory, Shatner was supposed to direct Star Trek four because Nimoy did three. But because he was still involved in T.J. Hooker at the time, he couldn't break free, so somebody else did four, and then he ended up doing five. So that's how that came about. Another quick little story that he tells us about Ricardo Montalban is that, yes, you know, obviously he got to work with him during Space Seed, but he had seen him work before. He says when he was young, you know, when he was very, very young, he actually saw him performing at a theater. You know, he was like a background dancer, so he was a very athletic guy. And then, you know, he got to work with him in, in, in Space Seed. And he said that when he worked with him at Space Seed, uh, he did notice that he was walking around with a cane, uh, Ricardo Montalban. And that was due to apparently some injury he had gotten at some set or something. And that the, that the cane was kind of helping him move around. And he said that by the time that they shot Star Trek II, he was already using a walker, you know, to walk around because his injury had gotten worse, you know, the, the effects of that injury. And he was having a very difficult time walking. But because he was such an athletic individual, you know, and, and so committed, you know, to, to, to his roles and stuff like that, he had started working out so much. And his chest, because of that upper body strength that he had developed to compensate for his legs, he was completely, completely buff up on his chest. And that is one of the main questions that is always asked about this film is, you know, is Khan, is Ricardo Montalban, is that his real chest or is he wearing some kind of prosthetic chest to make him look stronger than he really is? But no, apparently it's true. He was that buff because of the fact that the guy worked out so much you know, to help himself walk, you know, to compensate for his his problems walking. Another little tidbit about Star Trek II that Shatner told us was the fact that the film was originally called The Revenge of Khan. And that's how the film, you know, was being put together as. And because, now here's what he tells us, this I don't know if it's fact or fiction, but because at the same time, Lucasfilm, George Lucas, was working on Revenge of the Jedi, he didn't want to have two revenge films, you know, back to back, you know, especially such iconic franchises. So I believe he asked the Star Trek folks to please alter your name so we can have revenge. Ironically, even revenge went out the window because Lucas turned it to Return of the Jedi. But from what Shatner was saying is that because Lucasfilm was also doing the special effects for Star Trek II, it was kind of implied that, you know what, we better change our name because we really don't want them angry at us. And all of a sudden, maybe our effects won't be ready on time or anything like that. So they were afraid of some shenanigans going on if they didn't comply with his request. So that's kind of interesting. So that was a, you know, again, these cute little stories he was telling. I don't know if these uh, videos ever make it to YouTube. I don't know if they ever make it to a DVD form or, or any shape or form like that. 
uh, it'll be interesting to know that because um, they are really nice little interviews. And, you know, yes, you do hear some stories over again, but every now and then, you know, you do get some quick little tidbits. And, you know, the movie was great. The screening was great. Not a lot of people were there, but, uh, you know, we don't have the Alamo Draft House here in, in Florida. <laughs> like I used to back up in Jersey and New York. But it's nice to know that every now and then some of these big chain theaters are starting to participate in these anniversary screenings or, you know, stuff like that. So, you know, you don't get them every week like you do in the Alamo, but at least here, you know, every now and then when it comes to one of these big films, they either get remastered or anniversary screenings, but it's nice that they threw a little extra bone there. They throw a bonus something for you to see this. And this was theoretically the director's cut, which I think it's already been out on DVD. And one of the biggest ways of knowing whether or not you're watching a director's cut is when the crew of the Enterprise arrive at the uh, space station and they're searching the what appears to be a deserted space station, McCoy sees a rat scurrying through the floor, and you get a shot of the rat scurrying through the floor. Well, that was a cut scene. <laughs> so if you see the rat, you're watching the director's cut. <laughs> it's kind of weird, I know. But on a personal note, there there is some other weird stuff. But again, it's very personal. And that is uh, where I work. I work at the recreation center here in Florida. And one of the different places that I sometimes visit another different uh, recreation center, has rooms that are named after Hispanic movie stars or singers. And one of the rooms is the Ricardo Montalban room, which is bizarre because I'm probably the only person that who, whenever he visits that room, all I can think of is Shatner screaming Khan, you know, doing that Khan scream. And it's just, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that goes through that every time they walk into that room. Another thing that is very memorable about Star Trek II, for me personally, is something that has been happening lately in my age. I am 47 years old, and I've never, you know, throughout my younger life, wore glasses. And over the last, I would say over 10 years ago, let's say, for example, maybe a little longer than 10 years ago, I've gotten glasses but only to be used, you know, when using a computer or sometimes when um, driving at night and that sort of thing. And more recently, I've had to change, you know, my prescription specifically to help me read because I've been finding it more difficult in the last couple of years. I would even say on the, in the last year or so, being able to read something that is about, you know, a foot or two away from me. Like the manner in which you do when you hold a book, let's say at night, I love to read in bed, you know, before going to sleep. And, you know, you're holding the book and I'm bringing the book forward and backwards and forward and backwards to, to, to be able to focus properly. And, you know, eventually what I ended up doing was getting proper glasses, proper reading glasses. And those are the type of glasses that sometimes you can also buy over the counter. Well, in Star Trek II, I've always found that, those scenes of Kirk having to wear glasses for the first time and how awkward he uh, handles them because he's not used to them and and how cumbersome and how annoying they are and, and how it kind of reflects on the theme of aging in this movie. There's a lot about him being older in this movie and it somehow strikes me very personally that awkward and anger and just, you know, unusual feelings of having to all of a sudden have to make these adjustments to be able to do something you normally would do without even thinking about it. So yeah, every time I see those, him fiddling with the glasses or putting on the glasses and angrily putting them on, I can sympathize with him even more now at this age. Anyway, being able to see this, you know, in a big theater was definitely worth it. The next poster I want to talk about is The Warriors. Now, the Warriors is a movie that I did not see originally in the movie theater. It came out in 1979, and I probably didn't see it. It's really difficult to pinpoint when I saw it. Either I saw it on video, home video, VHS, or on HBO. But it's the type of movie that the older I got, the more into filmmaking that I got, the more that I appreciate the film. Now, one of the things about the movie is that I don't know why, maybe it's the style, maybe it's the low-budget nature of it, maybe it's the fact that it takes place mainly at night, and it is kind of like an action film. To me, it feels like a John Carpenter film, and I know it's not, it's Walter Hill. 
But this particular film, it, it just has that feel to me. And obviously, this is a movie about gangs in New York in the 70s, but it is not a, a realistic depiction of gangs. It's more of a romanticized, action-y version of what gangs were <laughs> and are, let's say. These are very diverse gangs in the first place. You know, you don't see too much diversity in gangs. But you have all these different gangs. And obviously, the, the lead is, you know, the warriors are the lead gang that we're following. And it's all about this uh, meeting that all these gangs are about to form because they're trying to unify all the gangs in New York and blah, blah, blah. But then some somebody shoots the, the guy in charge and everything goes crazy and they start and they're blaming this one gang and everybody's chasing this one gang, which we know they're innocent. So the whole movie is about them being able to return to their turf in Coney Island. And the, the best thing about the movie is that they have to travel through all these territories, through all these different turfs, and we meet all these different gangs, and they're ridiculous in terms of, it's like, they would never be like that. But it's a fun movie. Well, the poster was a little difficult to, to pinpoint in terms of, you know, who made it. The poster that I have is the one, and now there's multiple posters out there. You have art posters, like the one I have, and you have photographic posters where you see like the gang, you see the warriors kind of walking towards you and they're kind of in a silhouette, black silhouettes of them and that sort of thing. But this is the one that's the artsy one, the one that was actually drawn. The artist who put this poster together, his name is David Jarvis. And there isn't too much information out there about him. I couldn't find any specific website of his where you could actually go through all his different posters like you did with some of these other guys that I talked about in the past, like Struzan and these other guys. But from what I gathered, other than the Warriors, his name does appear on, let's see if you guys remember, Victory, the soccer World War II Michael Caine Sylvester Stallone film. Uh, he drew that. He drew the poster for a movie called Daryl back from the 80s about a kid who's kind of like a robotic, super genius kid. Action, really bad movie. He's done album covers in the 70s. He's done TV guide covers in the 70s. You know, this is a guy who did a lot of work, but probably not as prolific in terms of movie posters, you know, as some of these other heavy hitters. And it's also just like anything else. It's like, you can make a great career. You can make a lot of money, you know, from drawing some movie posters, but it also helps to draw a poster to a hit. You know, if you're constantly drawing posters for bombs, you know, you're kind of labeled, you know, a different tier of, you know, movie poster kind of guy, I guess. But this is a really cool poster. Obviously, the picture that you see there doesn't exist in the movie. But the picture that you have in this poster is you get like one or two of all the different type of gang members kind of lined up in, it must be Central Park, because I think that's where the, the meeting was supposed to take place. And you have, you know, Michael Beck is in the front, your lead character is in the front, and you have like one of those baseball bat Yankees, uh, <laughs> face painted guys you have one of the girl gang members you have like a bald guy with his sunglasses on one side and sprinkle throughout you know the different layers you find like the top hat guys and all these different you know bizarre looking costume gang members all the way deep 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 and the poster what it says on the top it says these are the armies of the night they are hundred thousand strong they outnumber the cops five to one. They could run New York City. Tonight, they're all out to get the Warriors. Okay, so now you kind of understand the plot of the movie. Now, what's interesting is that I was reading somewhere here that that particular poster, I think, or at least that particular banner, at some point they had to pull it because they were afraid of gang violence. This is something that happens sometimes, and it's happened before, where you have a movie that deals with gang violence let's say and gang members start to freak out over it and there might and there is some violence associated with it where you know the wrong people go to see it and start acting up well apparently this happened during this movie where some jackass got into a fight with somebody else somebody might have gotten hurt somebody might have gotten killed i'm not entirely sure but you know the movie kind of got a little bit of a bad reputation and the studio really wasn't that crazy about the movie. You know, it was just another low-budget movie for them. You know, whatever. So they kind of didn't, uh, you know, didn't back the movie too much. But there was some controversy attached to it. The movie apparently, you know, it, it made decent business. But 
it wasn't a critical hit at all. You know, the critics were not. And to tell you the truth, you know, you listen to the dialogue and the dialogue, it is a little silly. Everybody kind of takes themselves a little too serious. But you have to realize the movie is not very realistic. It's a different portrayal of these type of gangs. It's not, this isn't Serpico. <laughs> this isn't 70s, uh, you know, this isn't French connection. This is, this is a, it's almost like a fantasy. The movie feels, uh, to me at least, it feels a lot like a, uh, Western in terms of this adventure where they have to go from one place to another place to another place and they're finding all these different opponents that you don't know whether to trust them or to fear them and as they progress you know they lose some some members you know they gain some members and it's it's about getting to the end getting back to their home area again it's not a hundred you know don't take this movie literal <laughs> literally <laughs> when you watch it it's it's different and it's good there's something about it like i mentioned earlier it has this feel this i can only describe it as a john carpenter feel it was low budget it was shot at night so you do get a lot of that and just to see all these different gangs and you're writing this line where it could cross over into being completely silly and sometimes the more you think about it the sillier it is but it's definitely worth taking a look at and this particular poster like i said the artist I was not aware of his name before. I had to do some research, and it was a little difficult to, you know, to kind of dig up information about him. But to me, this is the poster. This is the poster because you have all those characters there, and it just screams 70s, that poster. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The force will be with you always. As we eagerly anticipate the premiere of Blade Runner 2049, recently, over the last couple of weeks, we've been given a couple of short films presented by the director of the film. He doesn't necessarily direct these shorts. He has other directors direct them. But the shorts are supposed to help us understand a little bit of what's been happening in between films. It's possible that the film itself might give us some of those hints. But this is something that's supposed to, I guess, help us, to, you know, to figure out what's been going on. And it's part of, obviously, the, I guess you could call it the viral marketing of the film. These type of things don't just come out of nowhere. This is similar, I believe, to how we had The Last Supper short come out before Covenant, Alien Covenant came out. And with this, we got three little films somewhat different the first one is called nexus dawn and it takes place in 2036 now remember blade runner took place in 2019 and in 2036 we have neander wallace who is the jared leto character and he seems to be based on the trailers that we've seen this genius corporate scientist who is responsible for the creation of the latest wave of androids that are out there, of replicants. This so-called Nexus, I don't know what number really they're up to at this point. I think they're Nexus 8. Uh, I could be wrong. And this particular short focuses on him attending a meeting. Now, he's escorted by a replicant and some other people, but it's him and the replicant in this room. And it looks like to be a secret meeting between him and what could be government agents or government representatives and it's him about telling them how he now is ready to go forward with you know his next wave of replicants and he's kind of strong arming them into allowing him to proceed with this new replicant technology let's say because apparently they're under some sort of prohibition something happened historically that's referred to as the blackout where I guess they stopped manufacturing replicants for some reason. But 
because of increased demands in productivity, especially in the off-world colonies. If you guys remember the off-world colonies from the original film, the, this uh, mystical place where everybody wants to go to <laughs> because the earth is so polluted and such a mess, he kind of is there to remind them that, yeah, the off-world colonies are doing fine, but they're not really doing that fine, and he, they do really need his replicants to help in that situation. And during this conversation, you know, he displays to them how good his replicants are in terms of how foolproof they are and how they will not harm anyone. You know, they're kind of, he's trying to make assurances that whatever it is that it happened in the past won't happen again. And he demonstrates this by having the replicant that's next to him, who kind of is acting kind of like a bodyguard, because you got to remember that I believe he's blind. He's a blind character, this Neander Wallace. So he has that replicant that's standing next to him shatter a glass and then make a decision, kill Wallace or kill himself. And the replicant kills himself right there for everyone to see. And that's kind of how the meeting ends. He basically proves to them, this is what my replicants can do. Then on the second short film, I believe it's just called 2048, we have Dave Bautista's character who's called Sapper. And we kind of see him living in this very congested metropolis, very Blade Runner-ish, <laughs> not to uh, sound redundant here, but... And how he has this family he's kind of watching over, you know, from a distance, you know. And at some point, this family is attacked by, you know, local hoods, local criminals. And he, how he comes to kind of rescue them. But in the process, he kills, basically destroys all these thugs, criminals that were bothering this family. And all of a sudden, his identity is basically revealed to everybody that this guy is not normal. He has this superhuman kind of strength and somebody later on you see them in a like a telephone uh, calling the authorities or calling somebody saying hey if you're looking kind of like if you're looking for this guy i know where he is blah 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 that sort of so he's kind of tipping the cops off i think as to the whereabouts of his character the film is 2048 which basically is a year before what we are about to see with the full-blown film so you know, you are learning a little bit about the background of it seems as if even though at some point they might have been allowed to return based on the previous film, that now we're in a world where maybe they're no longer welcome <laughs> once again, you know, being out in the open as a replicant. And a lot of these maybe are in, they're in hiding. The third and final film is very different because it's an anime, animated film. It is from director Shinjiro Watanabe, and from what I understand, he is the guy who directed Cowboy Bebop, and this one is called Blade Runner Blackout 2022. Very important, you know, out of all of these three, because this particular one deals with the event that the first film refers to. Something changed, something happened that made people all of a sudden afraid of replicants again and like i said this is an anime version it's very <laughs> i hate to call i hate to say akira ish but this is where all of this comes from this is all coming from anime the look the style everything comes from anime and it fits so perfectly that blade runner would have a tie-in to some sort of anime presentation this is a story of how a couple of replicants are on a mission. One of them rescues this girl replicant from thugs, again, you know, being beat up and that sort of thing. And he kind of has her go along with him on this mission to kidnap this truck, like a fuel truck, you know, big, big tractor trailer. And they're driving this truck to what appears to be a, some kind of military facility, I believe, or something like that. Now, during this particular story, they do confirm that the replicants, the, the six models, if you remember the Nexus 6 from the original Blade Runner, they talk about here how they've been phased out and replaced by the eight models, I guess the Nexus 8s. Now, apparently the biggest difference between these models is that now all of a sudden these models do not have a four-year lifespan. They have a natural lifespan, so that makes it a little different. Now, a really cool feature about this is that 
we do have, you know, as part of the introduction, as part of the story, uh, a couple of shots of Gaff in the police station being briefed on what is happening here with some of these replicants. And ironically, or or fortunately, the voice is by Edward James Olmos, so it's perfect that you have him. And it's funny, because when you're listening to him, his the way he speaks, the way he pronounces words, it's all there. You could, you could feel his voice. It's so good. But anyway, this also deals with a some kind of missile launch that's taking place that unbeknownst to the government, one of the missile technicians who is monitoring the missile redirects the missile to come to Los Angeles. And the missile strikes Los Angeles and the missile is an EMP pulse type of missile. So what ends up happening is what we see is how all of a sudden all the power comes off. Now, again, all of this having to do with this technician, he is actually a human that's working for the replicants, a human that has, I guess, established a relationship with the replicant girl that we see in this particular video. And the goal of the group is because there's this like registration that took place to identify all the replicants and there a lot of them are getting killed in the process, you know, because people are having this like humanity only attitude and this anti-replicant kind of revolt you know, directing a lot of violence towards replicants. Their goal is to not only set off this EMP pulse to be able to wipe out a lot of the electronic data, but they're also talking about how there are other cells of replicants all over also at the same time as this EMP is going to go off, destroying databases, locations where they're storing a lot of databases about identities of replicants, where all these registrations are kept. This way, they cannot be found, the ones that are out there and killed. And the missile is an EMP pulse type of missile. So what ends up happening is what we see is how all of a sudden all the power comes off. And the lights come out and all these police spinners and all types of other flying vehicles start crashing down all over the city. The blimp, <laughs> the off-world blimp, that crashes into a building and you have this massive catastrophic power failure stemming from these replicants who are, you know, rebelling, I guess. So here we have a nice little three short film trilogy that helps us prepare for it granted do you really need it probably not but hell it's good it's fun and it does set you up on the path of what could be this potentially very good film reviews so far have been kind of good and i'm almost afraid to be over optimistic about it because this is one of those films that i'm really hoping you know, for it to be good. I, I like this new director that they're using, Dennis Villeneuve. I wish I could pronounce his name properly. He did The Arrival and he did Prisoners, two very different movies, but very good. And I can guarantee that as soon as we get our hands on this movie and we can watch it, you guys will have our review. Television is an amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom killing business. I want to briefly talk about the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery. As we've been kind of mentioning it in the past, you know, as we knew it was coming, one of the biggest aspects of the show that we were concerned about. I was talking to Kyle about it, and and that is the fact that the show is being released in a pay service format as CBS tries to, you know, open up new grounds in the streaming service wars, I guess. It's funny, you had, first you had broadcastings fighting amongst themselves, and then you had cable fighting with cable and with broadcasters, and now you have stream serve, streaming services fighting. It's amazing how the industry uh, changes. Well, you know, you have the big boys out there, you have the Netflix and the Amazon Primes and the Hulus, and now there's a wave of new ones coming little by little. And one of them is CVS. You know, they have their own service now. And as their flagship show, no, no pun intended, Star Trek Discovery is the one that 
you know, is supposed to hopefully, uh, <laughs> you know, help them get on the map. Well, my problem has been the same problem that I've had for a while now is that is, you know, I already have Netflix. I already have Amazon. I'm not going to tack on any. Well, let me put it. Let me rephrase that. I am not going to pay <laughs> for any additional uh, services. Because it's just insane. You, you know, you're already paying for a cable bill. <laughs> you're already paying for Netflix and Amazon. You, you know, you, it's just insane. You cannot go that crazy with all these uh, services. So knowing that there are ways, there are means and ways of getting uh, media, I was able to uh, watch not only the first episode, which was the one that they aired for free, obviously on, on CBS, regular, you know, broadcast CBS, and. Then the second episode, which was really a, a two-parter, it's a, it's a continuation of the first episode, that they put on their streaming service as their first streamable show, which I think it was a bad idea as far as the marketing. I mean, you could say that, ooh, there's a cliffhanger in the middle of part one. Of course, there's a cliffhanger in the middle of part one. But I think you could have, uh, you know, this is a very rough area they're approaching, asking people to pay for this. And I think they should have made it a little simpler in terms of do the entire two-parter for free. Air that. Heck, air it as a two-hour special. I mean, what the hell? Who knows? I'm sure there are more smarter people than myself uh, with marketing degrees that that know how to do this. <laughs> And that there is a, a strategy behind it. Okay, well, whatever. The point is that I got to watch both parts. And this is kind of, to me, it's kind of like my my theory on, on toys. And that is, uh, you've heard me say this many times, when all of a sudden a new toy fair comes up and a whole line of toys appear, and sometimes I'm not impressed. And by not being impressed, I don't have to worry about having to chase these figures down or these toys or whatever. You know, there is an upside to disappointment. <laughs> wow, they should make that, turn that into a bumper sticker. There is a, on the other hand, when they do announce a whole bunch of good, you know, toys that are coming, you're happy because, wow, this looks really good. They look really nice. And the bad side is now I got to find them. <laughs> now I got to pay and find these things, which is a, a whole other uh, world of problems. Well, this is kind of the situation we were on here. The fact that Paramount kind of switched gears with the movies and said, all right, you know what? Let's cool off with the movies and let's do a little bit of television now, you know, kind of disappointed me because, you know, I kind of was enjoying the movies. I, I like what they've done so far. And you know, I, I was looking forward for them to continue, but I guess they want to take a break and they want to go in the television route. Now, the television route is a little dicey, scary route because you can almost never satisfy the fans. The expectations of the fans, whether you're a casual Trek fan or a super Trek fan, <laughs> you know, whatever you happen to, whatever category you happen to fall into, it's very difficult, uh, I think, to, to, to please everybody. And while I've been seeing somewhat pretty good reviews out there for what I just watched, there are already some grumblings of, well, why do they have to do this? And why do they have, and why do they have to look like this? And why do they have to look like that? You know, that, that's unavoidable. You cannot get away from it. The show is different. What's interesting about the show is that it takes place, I believe, in the prime universe, meaning the old Kirk, the Shatner Kirk universe. This is obviously post-Enterprise and pre-original series. Now, just because it's placed in between those two, and let me just go back a step here, Prime Universe as opposed to Kelvin Universe, the J.J. Abrams Universe, which is this alternate timeline that we've been watching films on. That's how they explain the differences. Okay, fine, whatever. So here's where it, it all fits in. It's in there somewhere. Off the bat, without even getting to the story, the show looks super, super slick. And the slickness of the show is something that's always going to be a problem because of the continuity. And this is the problem that they had with Enterprise. Enterprise was another show that took place, you know, before the original series, but a lot of Enterprise looked very modern. They tried to obviously, you know, bridge that gap, but there's absolutely no way you can put on a show that anybody would allow them to put on a show where it would look like the original series because 
you know, that was very basic looking, you know, today looking. <laughs> I mean, back then you could kind of say, yes, it was, it was very, uh, very, uh, very accurate, very futuristic. Yeah, you could, maybe you could say that. I wasn't around in the, in the mid 60s. So I don't know if television back then people had that point of view, but easily in the 80s that looked old in the 90s and now it still looks old so you can't go to that point so i think what they did and you can't avoid it it's impossible to avoid it they had to make it a modern looking uh setting a technology similar to what they did with the last set of films and i see that i kind of see that now Granted, the look of things look very modern. The functionality of things, they are trying very hard, I think, to fit it in so that certain technology doesn't fully, fully exist yet. So that's kind of how they work that around. With that said, like I was just saying, it looks super slick. It looks slick, slick, slick. The consoles look slick. The weapons look slick. The ships look, man, they look nice. And the, the, just the space. Uh, the rendering of space and ships and planets it it looks it looks fantastic the story itself is basically a captain and her number one michael they're just coming back from a um a prime directive kind of a, a mission where they're trying to help this race to get their water back before the planet dries out or something they, they just avoided a asteroid collision so they're kind of being rescued back out before they can be found and blah 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 and that's how you get them you know that's how we're being slowly introduced to all the characters and the, the captain she's very fond of, of of her number one and she's even saying that she wants to kind of like nominate her for uh for her own command and blah 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 there's a lot of blah 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 in star trek <laughs> so while all this is happening we also start to meet the Klingons. And this is a situation where these Klingons are, apparently they've been fractured. All their houses are fractured and they're not very cohesive. There is a zone of this is Klingon territory, this is Federation territory. And there is this one Klingon who is in the process of trying to unite all the houses. And he needs to do it in a way that they will all agree to do it. And the best way that he knows how to do it is to come up with some kind of war to unite them all and he basically manufactures a war or the conditions for a war against the federation so as they prepare this plan you know we we're back with our our, our regular ship full of people as they're investigating a i think like a damaged uh, communications array or something like that a, a satellite the ship they're on the genzo they notice something in the distance, something re something far they can't get to, and they're too far away from it in the asteroid field, they can't get to it, so Michael volunteers to put on like an EVA suit and fly out there to see what that thing is. We also start to learn more about Michael, and Michael is, uh, she's human, but she apparently has been raised by Vulcans, specifically Savic, you know, the Savic that we know from all the other <laughs> television shows and films and everything. Now, when she gets there, she realizes that it's a Klingon vessel and a Klingon comes out and attacks her and she pushes him away or something and in the process kills him. And that is what the Klingons are using as the excuse or at least the, the leader He's trying to manipulate that event so that here we go. Let's do it. Let's let's unite the houses and let's attack the Federation again. And once they realize what just happened, all of a sudden an entire fleet appears of Klingons because he does convince all the other houses against the wishes of the regular Klingon, let's say high command, let's say, he talks them into doing it. He talks the rest of them into uniting and staging some kind of a front against the Federation. So at this point, Michael suggests or <laughs> strongly suggests what we have to do is we have to fire on the Klingons because that's the only way they understand. It is not, not from a aggressive perspective but from what she learned from the vulcans is that the klingons they're a different race they understand a different way of it's almost a different way of communicating and to them strength is communication so by taking the initiative by firing the first shot it could help them in indicating their posture their superior posture but the captain doesn't want to do it 
and she uh, incapacitates the captain. She does the, the the Vulcan neck pinch on her, and goes to the the bridge and starts to order people around to kind of do what she wants them to do. And then the captain shows up, places her under arrest, and like I said, that entire fleet shows up, and now they're in trouble. Cut to part two. Things are getting more tense. The Klingon, you know, the twenty four houses, they're all in in a complete war posture. They're ready to go. The captain offers to, you know, peacefully negotiate their way out of this incident, and the Klingons will not have it. And then all of the Federation reinforcements show up, another huge amount of ships, all different shapes. I love that scene. I love seeing all these different constitution type and other types of, uh, you know, Federation of, uh, vessels. And even the admiral that arrives to help also communicates with the Klingons to try to break it all off. Doesn't work. His ship gets torn to pieces, and it's a free-for-all. At that point, everybody's firing on everybody. The Federation is slowly getting decimated <laughs> to the point where the main ship is damaged. They're kind of floating out there in space. The Klingons, are they kind of stop firing on everyone. They're collecting their dead as part of their ritual. And Michael <laughs> is still in the brig, and she kind of talks her way into the computer to rationalize her being released because of the fact that the ship's about to be destroyed. Uh, so she is able to uh, get out of the brig, which has been shrunken quite a bit because there's so many chunks of the ship missing that her force field is only encompassing a very small part of her cell. So she's back with the captain and she's trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how do we get out of this mess? And one idea is to obviously blow up the lead ship. But Michael says that, you know, again, this is all based on her Vulcan upbringing that by killing the main person, you you turn that person into a martyr, and that will even unify them even more in terms of uh, how devoted they are going to be to this particular incident and wanted to continue it. So the secondary plan is, well, if we capture the leader, we can then you know throw him in jail and use it as a, an embarrassment to the Klingon Empire, which is something that they they might react to a little better. So that's kind of like the plan they go with, but they still kind of they sneak away a, a bomb, I believe, into a, one of the dead soldiers, and then the, the soldiers is taken up into the ship. The sh part of the ship explodes. They're in chaos over there. So they then transport to the ship, and it's the captain and Michael, and they're looking for <laughs> the main guy, and they're fighting with some some of the other crew members in the Klingon ship. And the captain is killed, and Michael shoots the lead Klingon. So now she just killed <laughs> the guy that she's supposed to get the hell out of there as a prisoner. So she inadvertently created this situation now because that she's doing exactly what she was afraid that could be done, and that is take, turn this guy into a martyr. She wanted to even take the body out so they couldn't even have the body because that's very symbolic for them, you know, to have the body of the martyr, you know, that kind of thing. But she couldn't do it. But by the time she got beamed out, only live, what, what they were saying is that we can only uh, beam a living uh, signal. And she was not the living signal. <laughs> so Michael was the only one that was able to beam out of the ship. Now, as a result of that, we see Michael all of a sudden in some kind of a tribunal being sentenced for mutiny, which is what happened earlier in the other episode and she's being sent somewhere i guess uh to serve her sentence obviously we know that's not the end of things well let's talk about the characters there's the captain of the ship which i i kind of had a feeling they were going to go in that direction because i i know that there's other lead actors she wasn't going to be around too long. The captain is played by Michelle Yeoh, who's done all those flying dragon, hidden tiger, climbing panda bear, uh, <laughs> and all those, all those martial arts films. She's a superstar in China. Uh, she plays the captain of the, of the ship. Uh, Michael is played by Sonequa Martin Green, who we had just seen in Walking Dead. Uh, she was, uh, <laughs> She exited the show in order to do this. So, uh, you know, she's pretty good. She does have that Vulcan thing. There's a, there's a scene in the in the show where while she's in the brig, she she is in contact with Sarek through some kind of telepathic connection that they have, which is, this is new. I've never seen something like this before. And there is a background having to do with her being adoptive, I think, as a result of a Klingon attack on some kind of an outpost. 
And that's how he adopts her, more or less. I don't know if you can call it an adoption. There's a lot of secondary characters that might or might not make it to the regular series. In other words, this was kind of like a pilot, if you will. So I'm pretty sure this is one alien character who's played by Doug Jones named Saru. Again, I can't really describe it. He's very tall, taller than most people, kind of skinny with a very alien design head. And I have a feeling that he will be part of the actual show itself once we get our main character, who is Michael, into the next situation that she's into. There are a couple of background characters here or there that are interesting, you know, interesting, uh, you know, kind of aliens, humans, that kind of robotic ones also, you know, there's a combination. But this was obviously, because this was kind of like a pilot, it was kind of set up to just set the story up. And yeah, like I mentioned earlier, the, I like the science, I like the design, I like the style. This particular mission, this particular incident, I liked it. The Klingons are different. The Klingons don't look like much of the Klingons we've seen in the past. They probably look more, I think, like the JJ-style <laughs> Klingons that we've seen. There are different variations in them in terms of skin tone. So you have very light, super light, like, like pale white, and very dark, super dark, you know, almost black, black. So they, they they are trying to establish the unfortunate continuity problems with all of the previous ones where they look different, they have different skin colors, different head markings, different styles of hair, you know, they are trying to kind of recreate that whole unusualness, <laughs> I guess, about them. I think this is a good foundation for the show. I hope this is the ongoing plot element, because a lot of times... You know, you create something really good and then you discard it. And that is one of the things I remember Enterprise was supposed to be. Enterprise, at one point, they were saying how this show will be about the whole introduction of the Klingon skirmish. How the whole Klingon war started with the Federation. And they never really got to that. I mean, they, they touched upon it and then they kind of, okay, we're going to do something else now. This show hopefully doesn't do that. Hopefully, this will be the ongoing, you know, plot element that kind of brings the shows, you know, season to season. For a start, I like it. And let me mention one more thing that I almost forgot. The opening. I absolutely love the opening and the music because the music seems to have a lot of everything having to do with Star Trek in it. I caught bits and pieces of very modern Abrams style music and the old one. Even in the sound effects inside the ship, you hear some of those old machines and beeps and bleeps and all that little sounds. You hear it in there and I love it. I love, I love hearing all that stuff. So, Overall, I'm very satisfied with the show. I am going to follow it in whatever manner I can get my hands on it. I'm not entirely sure how many episodes this will be, but I do know they're only doing them one at a time in terms of how they're releasing them. They're not doing the whole, you know, data dump of an entire season in one shot because of economic reasons. Sure, I'm sure they don't want people sampling the channel and binge watching and then dumping the channel. So for now, you know, I'm going to keep up with it. I recommend it. I would at least say if you're a Star Trek fan, try it because it is not a horrible show in terms of don't even get near this thing. No, I like what I've seen. I would even say that if you like the modern Star Trek films, this might be a little more in your, you know, wheelhouse. So give it a try. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed all of our different segments, posters of the month with... Wrath of Khan and the Warriors, you know, we like to sprinkle them out there, mix them up. We have so many more coming up. I have a pile of posters here. I have no idea when I'm going to ever when I'm ever going to be able to finish going through them. That's why we have to go through two posters a month at this rate. And also Blade Runner, my god, that thing is just so close and the reviews are getting even better and better the closer we get. I am so psyched about this movie. Hope it does not disappoint. And Star Trek Discovery. We'll see how the series develops. So far, we're off to a great start. But I know a lot of the Trek fans out there, they have so many different opinions on the matter. Even before the first frame is shown on television, a lot of people probably already have made up their minds. <laughs> but hey, I tried it. I liked it. I'm going forward. Let's see where we go. So on behalf of everybody here, we'll see you next week here at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody.
When I first saw Blade Runner, I was stunned. Ridley Scott's vision struck so many chords. I could immediately recognize its impact on the entire cinematic world. Now, I have been given the amazing opportunity to continue this story and direct Blade Runner 2049, which picks up 30 years after the first film. So with that in mind, I decided to ask a couple of artists that I respect to create three short stories that dramatize some key events that occurred after 2019, when the first Blade Runner takes place, but before 2049, when my new Blade Runner story begins. My friend Luke Scott has directed this short film you're about to see. I hope you enjoyed this special glimpse into the world of Blade Runner 2036. All our memory bearings from the time are all damaged in the blackout. But there are sometimes fragments. Humanity has only survived this long by crushing the Earth to suit its needs. The stars, our only hope, are hidden behind the lives you will not allow me to create. <laughs> Off-well colonies are thriving. Insufficient to the needs of ultimate survival. Your laws have changed the hands of progress. The laws keep blood off the streets. Nexus phase is unreliable. Safeguards put in place by Tyrell were negligent. Too many have died. We will not add to that number. My replicants will live as long or as short as a customer will pay. My replicants will never rebel. They will never run. They will simply obey. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>